We're in our next to last week of our series on God's sovereign grace in the story of Joseph. We come this morning to chapters 47 and 48. And what I'll do this morning at the beginning is read chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. Give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Genesis 47, beginning in verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, Put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father's. In the days of their sojourning, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramesses as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his brother, his father, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it today before us. It's been read in a language that we understand. We come to you now asking that you would give us more than physical hearing and understanding, that you would give us spiritual hearing and understanding. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. God, make us more like Jesus. Father, would you take this message and would you use it to minister to the hearts of your people? Would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So the upcoming start of the Major League Baseball season, everyone know that that's happening this week, opening day. The start of that has me feeling all sorts of nostalgia. When I was younger, I would often have tickets to attend opening day at Bush Stadium, which is quite a spectacle. 
from World Series trophies, and I'll brag a little bit, from 11 World Series trophies and Hall of Famers welcoming a, a parade of players at home plates to the majestic Budweiser Clydesdales taking their ceremonial lap around the inside of the ballpark. The sights and sounds of that day signaling the start of a marathon season were both exciting and exhilarating. But since moving away from St. Louis in 2004, I've been relegated to watching these festivities on television or a phone screen. Something I will actually do again this Thursday, if you're wondering. But it's just not the same. It's not the same as being there. It's not the same. So you can be sure that I'll say this on Thursday, something that Megan has heard me say every day now for 18 plus years. I miss being there. Man, I miss being there. I long to go home again one day to be there in person for opening day. You'll have to hear it again on Thursday. Perhaps baseball isn't your thing. Perhaps Major League Baseball isn't your thing, but I'm sure that nostalgia is. We all know nostalgia, that sentimental longing, our, our wistful affection for someone, for something, for somewhere in our past. But did you know that nostalgia, nostalgia is a funny word to say, did you know that nostalgia was once considered a terrible disease? was once considered a disease in the mid to late 18th century, so 1700s, nostalgia was considered a credible source of both emotional and physical ailments. And it was even listed on papers as a cause of death. The very word nostalgia itself hinted at its core condition. The word is derived from two other words, nostos, which means homecoming, and algia, which means pain, homesickness, home pain. In fact, there was once even the belief that there was a nostalgia bone. And doctors were looking for the nostalgia bone because if you could somehow cut it out early, then you wouldn't have this problem. It was a problem among soldiers, right? Traveling and being homesick and being unfit for battle. And so these doctors here, doctors were looking for a nostalgia bone to cut out. Well, if you're wondering, the last mention of nostalgia on a death certificate was in 1918. Even in 1918, cause of death, homesickness, nostalgia. Well, nostalgia may have disappeared from our medical dictionaries. We haven't yet cured this common, persistent ache that every one of us experiences Author Jen Pollock Michelle has put it this way. She says, part of being human is knowing the grief of some paradise lost. No matter how settled we may be, she says, there resides within each of us a foreboding sense of rupture, as if we've been cut off from some hidden source of happiness. In our text this morning, we encounter the patriarch, Jacob, along with his family, going and settling into the land of Egypt, into the eastern region of Egypt known as Goshen, or the land of Ramesses. 
And though the journey there has indeed resulted in a reunion with Joseph and a great blessing of material provision for the family, we come to find in Jacob what we find inside each and every one of us. The abiding presence of nostalgia, that persistent longing for the greater provision, a greater provision that awaits us in a much greater promised land. So with the land on his mind and heaven on his heart, Jacob's story in these chapters, chapters 47 and 48, reveal three important realities for all those who suffer from what I want to call heavenly nostalgia. Three realities that I want to discuss with you this morning. So the first, if you're taking notes, the first of these realities is that we are sojourners. We are sojourners. I want you to listen again to how Jacob responds to Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse nine. Look there again. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. I find this interesting. Pharaoh asks Jacob a very direct question. How many are the days of the years of your life? He basically is asking, how old are you? How old are you, Jacob? And remember, this is a culture all over the ancient Near East. This is a culture that venerated age. A venerated age. This is appropriate, even polite question for Pharaoh to ask him. The thought then, way back then, was not that much different than today. Longer life usually meant greater blessing, greater wisdom, perhaps some secret to health, right? You see that when someone lives to be 100 and something years old. What's your secret? I eat bacon every day. You know, we still ask these questions. We're so fascinated by this. So Pharaoh asked him, how old are you, Jacob? See, Jacob is an old man. He's an old man, and here he is, an old man standing before the most powerful, and probably much younger, the most powerful man in the world. And this man honoring Jacob in his age gives him a little bit of a chance to boast. I'm 130. But Jacob's response doesn't boast, does it? In fact, he asked him about the days of his life, and how does Jacob respond? It's not the days of his life. He speaks to his sojourn. He speaks to his sojourn, and in, instead of blessing, he speaks about his hardship. Jacob knew that his time here on earth was not his. This isn't his life. His time on earth was merely a sojourn, a, a temporary stay somewhere, not a permanent residence. Remember, God had promised Jacob back in the previous chapter, verse 4 of chapter 46. I'm going to go with you to Egypt, and I'm going to bring you back again. So Jacob knew that his departure from the promised land was merely temporary. Thinking about his family, it's just merely temporary. In fact, you can see just how much Canaan, how much the promised land was on his mind. If you turn over to verses 29 through 31 of this chapter. 47, 29 through 31. Look there with me. And when the time drew near that Israel, that is Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, 
Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. That's normal. That's how you would seal a deal. Shake hands. You actually put your hand and shake under the thigh. Okay, that's what he's doing. He says, put your hand under my thigh and promise. They're covenanting. Promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Look here. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his staff. Jacob makes Joseph covenant with him to go through a covenant ceremony to not bury him in Egypt. He belonged in the grave of his ancestors. He belonged with Abraham and Isaac But even more, Jacob understood that he belonged to an even better home than that. He knew he belonged to an even better home than Canaan. And this is something that in the New Testament is made very clear to us. Very clear. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16 This reminds you, verse 12, before, therefore, from one man, that is, Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So he's talking about all those who come from Abraham. Now listen to how he describes this in verse 13 of chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So even Jacob wasn't looking to just Canaan. He was looking to a heavenly city. This should challenge us. This should challenge us to think about the days of the years of our own lives. If our time on this earth, if your time here on this earth, however long that is, is all that there is, and this world is actually your true home, then it makes perfect sense that when things don't go your way or when things don't happen the way you want them to happen or what you ask for you don't get, it makes sense if all that there is is this world, then how would you react to that? Absolutely devastated, right? If this world alone is our life and if our days are few and even evil, then we have lost at the only game that really counts, haven't we? But if this world, if this world is not our true home, if this world is merely a temporary stopping place on the journey to heaven, that puts an entirely different perspective on our lives. It should change the perspective of our present sufferings and our present and future glories as well. Commentator Ian Duguid illustrates it this way. He says, this is his illustration, I'll read it for you. He says, we understand this when it comes to earthly journeys. If a snowstorm descends while you are traveling and you are forced to take refuge in a cheap hotel, 
You don't complain too much about the color scheme of the room. You don't head to the local store to replace the shower curtain and the drapes. You remember that you're only going to be here for a night or two. You can put up with almost anything, almost anything, for a couple of nights, knowing that after that, you'll be able to go home and just laugh off your experience. But he continues. Alternatively, if you're traveling on business and are given an upgraded suite in a luxurious hotel, you can enjoy it for a night or two without being fooled into thinking that the wonderful amenities are now your permanent right. Marble bathrooms, plush robes, heated floors, daily maid service. They may be lovely, but in this situation, they're just temporary. So too then, this world is not our true home. This world is not our true home. It's a temporary stopping place on a greater journey. The joys we experience here, and there are many, those joys give us reasons to be thankful to God, but those joys should not be what define us. And while our sufferings and our disappointments here surely bring many tears of sorrow, they are also not what define us. We're not defined by our joys and our sufferings. We're merely sojourners. And there's coming a day when we're gonna reach our true home, our home in heaven, and every joy will be laid down at the foot of Christ. Every sorrow will be there too. He's gonna wipe away every tear from our eye, right every wrong. And then we'll fully experience then what we know to be true now. All I have is Christ. Christ is all. So we see then, from Jacob's story here, that we are sojourners. Next, I want us to see that though we're sojourners, we're also settlers. We're settlers. And this reality is revealed throughout chapters 47 and 48, but it's centered around chapter 47, verse 27. Look with me there, 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. They were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. Joseph, Joseph also recognized, just as Jacob did, that the family's time in Egypt was a sojourn, not an arrival at a permanent destination. That is why Joseph in the verses before and even the chapter before labored to ensure that his brothers and their families settled safely in that place, in Goshen. He wanted them to settle there. Why? Goshen is on the eastern edge of Egypt. It's the closest to Canaan. It's the closest to Canaan it's also on the sidelines of Egyptian life. It's where those shepherds would take their flocks. Joseph didn't want his family to get drawn into Egyptian life. He wanted them to stay on the margins so that they would be ready to leave when God called them to leave. But even so, that doesn't mean that people were not meant to be fruitful in the land. It doesn't mean that they were just supposed to sit around and wait they were to be fruitful in the land of their sojourn. They were to be more than a, a parasite that just feeds on a host until the host can no longer sustain it. 
They were to settle there. They were to dwell there, to be fruitful, to multiply. Even more, they were to be a blessing. They were to fulfill the covenant mandate of God. The mandate that had been there since the very beginning, to be fruitful and to multiply, to settle in the land, to work for God, to grow their families and enjoy his bountiful gifts. So it's, it blows my mind. It's absolutely fascinating to me when Jacob meets Pharaoh earlier in this chapter, what does he do? Look at 47.7 and 47.10. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then again in 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. You see on the world stage, in the world's eyes, Jacob was a nobody. Standing before the most powerful leader in the world, he was as insignificant as any person standing before him could be, especially since he was a shepherd. If you don't know this, I have mentioned it before, uh, to the Egyptians, shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were the lowest of the low. And even more, those who were shepherds, those who were from that region of Canaan, couldn't even eat at the same table with them. They were outcasts. So the only thing really going for Jacob at this point, the only thing that really gets him in that room is what? His son. He's Joseph's dad. But Jacob knew what God had told his grandfather, Abraham. Do you remember? Through your offspring... All the nations will be blessed. Through your offspring, all the world will be blessed. So Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, stands with another offspring of Abraham and blesses the king of Egypt, pronounces a blessing over him. Jacob doesn't care who he is in the eyes of the world. He cares more about who he is in the eyes of God. And so he blesses him. Oliver Wendell Holmes is credited with the saying that most of you know, some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Have you heard that before? I like it better the way Johnny Cash expresses. He expresses it in his song, No Earthly Good. This is what he sings, I won't sing it. The gospel ain't gospel until it is spread. But how can you share it where you've got your head? There's hands that reach out for a hand if you would. So heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Here we see the razor's edge that all of us are called to walk. Being in the world, but not of the world is not always an easy call to fulfill, is it? It's hard. Living in this world is a lot like living in Goshen. Planted firmly enough here that we sense the danger of being easily assimilated into the evils around us, but close enough to heaven that we can be ready to go as soon as we're called home, right? We've got our go bags ready. Jesus, if you're ready to call me home, I'm ready to go. And as poetic as Holmes may be, and as poetic and entertaining as Johnny Cash might be, the biblical reality, listen, it's impossible to be both heavenly minded and of no earthly good. It's impossible. For when we are truly heavenly minded, we're reminded that the heavenly kingdom is not just something up there or out there. We recognize that the heavenly kingdom is something that is right here. We're in it now. And as those who are more than settlers 
of the world, as those who are settlers in the kingdom of heaven, which has come into the world, we're called to take up the task of advancing the kingdom in the here and in the now. So what do we do? We get involved. We work. We work with our hands. We strive to bear fruit for God. We bring the truths of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear upon a lost and dying world. We speak up and we speak out. We bless others. We're a blessing to others, even those who persecute us. We use our gifts and our callings to serve those whom God has called us to serve. Heaven may be upon our hearts, but until it's time to go there, we settle in the land God gives to us. We're sojourners settling here, and we do it like Jacob's family with God's grace and God's blessing upon us, and we're fruitful, and we multiply greatly. Isn't that the story of the church? Isn't that the story of the church from Acts chapter one and on? Fruitful and multiplied greatly. Read the book of Acts again. That's your marker throughout the book of Acts. The church bore fruit and it multiplied greatly. And we see it even today as the kingdom spreads in the hearts of boys and girls and men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Fruitful and we multiply. So we've seen from our text that we're sojourners and that we are settlers. Coming to chapter 48, we see then that we are also sheep. That's our third and final reality I want to discuss today. We are sheep. Look with me in Jacob's words there in chapter 48, verses 15 through 16. And Jacob blessed Joseph, and this is what he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the land. In chapter 48, we have the account of Joseph coming and presenting his sons. You remember he has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim. He comes and he presents them to Jacob to be blessed. And what happens in this encounter is monumental in the history of Israel. For it records how Jacob takes these two to be his own sons. To be my sons. You hear that list of the 12 tribes and you're like, where's Joseph? Well, because Manasseh and Ephraim are listed. And then you have 13. You're like, well, wait, wait. well, Levi is settled throughout the land. Jacob takes these two to be his own. And this is the recording of that for God's people. He even gives them land that he himself, the choicest land he gives to them. The land that he had taken by his own hand. But I want you to know that in a scene reminiscent of earlier days, Jacob does what seems to be a pattern in the patriarch's life. He puts the younger, Ephraim, before the older, Manasseh. 
Joseph kind of presents him in a way, if you read this chapter, he presents him in a way that he, he wants to get it right. right? I want to bless the older and the younger. And you'll read Jacob takes and crosses his hands. <laughs> Right? He can't see very well. His eyes are dim like his father Isaac at the time when, when he blessed Jacob and Esau. He crosses his hands because he wants to get it the way that God's telling him to get it. And Joseph isn't happy with it. And of course, he explains to him. But this is a pattern. The younger is the one to carry on the blessing, not the older. Right? It was Isaac, not Ishmael. It was Jacob, not Esau. And now it's Ephraim, not Manasseh. As familiar as this scene may be, Jacob's words, though, are our focus this morning. His words are refreshingly new. Though he speaks of his days before Pharaoh, remember how he called his days? You know, Jacob the cynic, right? Few and evil. You know, when you ask someone, how you doing? Horrible. (laughs) I'm not going to answer your question. I'm just going to tell you I'm horrible. Few and evil have been these days. It's like you're 130, man. That's a lot. Look what he says here. God has been his shepherd. God has been his shepherd all his life long to that day. Now, this is probably 17 years later than when he spoke to Pharaoh. Can't always get the chronology just right. The Hebrews didn't think like we think. But this is a long time later. Maybe he's had some time to process it. But either way, think about it. God has been my shepherd. The shepherd who's redeemed him. Look what it says. He's redeemed me from all evil. Jacob is acknowledging that although he is both a sojourner and a settler, and even though he might actually be a shepherd himself, he's merely a sheep. He's merely a sheep of the one true great shepherd, God himself. This reality that all of us are sheep of the one true great shepherd points to a very wonderful truth. And it's found when Jacob says that God has redeemed him from all evil. He's not saying that God had prevented him from having bad experiences or troubling circumstances. That's not what it's saying. You know that's not the case. If you know anything about Jacob, this guy's had a rough life. He's had lots of troubling circumstances. He spent the last how many years thinking that his beloved son was dead? Think about it. He's not saying that God had prevented these bad things from happening. Instead, he's saying that God had redeemed. God had redeemed all of those evil and tragic events in his life. You see, those events, instead of destroying Jacob, these traumatic experiences had been so redeemed by God that now goodness was flowing from them instead. None of Jacob's pain had been wasted. None of his sorrow had been fruitless wandering around in a wilderness. Throughout all the days of his life, he's saying, the good shepherd had been leading him along just the right path. Whether that was the green pastures of plenty or through the valley of deep shadows, his shepherd was there providing good for him while redeeming evil. God had been bringing blessing and hope out of Jacob's darkest and most desperate situations. Well, we're a lot like Jacob in many ways, but we're also sheep of the one true shepherd. Our sojourning here may be difficult, 
And our settlement might at times actually feel unsettling. Yet like Jacob, we can ultimately find rest in God's faithfulness and in God's goodness. With God as our guide, we can confidently know that we do not walk alone, that everything that happens to us and around us are not just chance things happening. They're not just random acts happening. And somehow we have to get our way through it in just the right way. We have to walk the maze just the right way. No, whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. We sang that earlier. What God does is right. God is leading us. And the best part is, is you're not walking alone. You don't walk that path by yourself. If you belong to Jesus, you walk with him. He is with you by his Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. And he's leading you on that path, that pilgrim's progress. He's leading you home. Home to the home he's preparing for you. Your home in heaven. You know, all of us are nostalgic for something. Baseball, whatever it may be. All of us who belong to Jesus know this nostalgia in an even greater way. For all of us who've been captivated by grace, We've come to experience that persistent longing for the greater provision that awaits us in heaven. Even so, we can't allow nostalgia to become a fatal disease that renders us unable to properly look at ourselves, to see ourselves and our calling and our earthly here and now in the right way. As we've seen this morning, we're sojourners. We're strangers and aliens in this world Peter tells the church in 1 Peter 2, we're strangers and exiles, aliens in this world. But listen, we're nevertheless at one and the same time settlers and sheep here as well. We're walking that edge. We're sojourners, but this is where we need to be. This is where God has us. We're called to be a blessing to others, even as we ourselves are being blessed by our shepherd, our great shepherd, Jesus, we're being blessed by his ever-present faithfulness and his ever-present guidance. And like Jacob, we often have heaven on our hearts and land on our minds. Or maybe we'll say it the other way. We may have land on our hearts and heaven on our minds. But the wonderful thing about being a new creation in Christ Jesus, the wonderful thing about living not for ourselves, but for him who saved us from our sin, The wonderful thing is knowing that not only do heaven and earth actually belong to him, but listen, our hearts and minds belong to him as well. If we're in Christ, all of us belongs to him. Brothers and sisters, we are not our own. We belong both body and soul to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ, the one who saves us. We're almost home, friends. We're almost home, but not yet. So if our hearts ache for anything, if our souls long for anyone, for anything, for anywhere, let our hearts ache and our souls long for Jesus. Let our hearts ache and our souls long for the great salvation that we have in and through him. A salvation that, yes, we experience in part now, 
one day, one day we'll experience it in its fullness. Amen and amen.